This evening, I would like to continue with uh, creative engagement. And first, looking a little at uh, what I briefly alluded to in the meditation today, and that was the eight worldly wind, and I mentioned four. Praise, blame, gain, loss, pleasure, pain, fame, disrepute. And I think it's interesting to kind of look at it, you know, um, to see in our daily life how can we creatively engage with praise and we blame. Because often, in a way, either we expect praise, you know, I mean, it feels good, I mean, but, or when somebody praises, we say, no, 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 I did not do anything. It's interesting. We expect it, we don't get it, and we get it, we say, no, 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 no. <laughs> and to me, in a way, I think creative engagement with praise, that if somebody prays, you say, hmm, thank you, thank you, in a way to accept it. And at the same time, to be careful not to expect it, because then it makes us feel better. This, I think, what we have to, the, cre- the difference between appreciating that one is praised, accepting it, and in a way needing it in order to feel, oh, I have done a good job. My mother is like this. She's wonderful. She's very kind. But she will say, they did not say thank you. And she, in a way, she needs to, to be acknowledged. It's interesting. You know, she, she can't just give. She needs to be acknowledged. She was, I had her on the phone, and she, was, she took care of my niece and her little friend. And when I thought, I said, you know, how did it go? She said, it was okay, but they did not kiss me before they left. <laughs> and, it, and it's interesting. The thing is that if we expect it in a certain way, then generally we're going to be disappointed if we don't get it. When if we in a way don't expect it and we get it then, it will be nice. It will kind of, you know, a nice plus. So to be careful, the problem is when we, it kind of helps our sense of self. It's back to this thing that we need it so that our sense of self feels better. I think that's what we have to be a little careful about. Then the blame. This is interesting blame because we, 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 we're very afraid of blame. You know, if somebody blames me, then this is it. You know, we're like, you know, my life is finished. You know, we, we have to be, and to me, blame, in a way, has a useful function of uh, if we made a mistake, somebody tells us, hey, you know, that was a mistake, like me and the persimmon and not having realizing it. And she said, hey, wait a minute, you did this. I thought, oh, that's true. I did not see it. And so, To me, creative engagement with blame is again to be careful of this kind of, you know, sticking to the self. You know, that if somebody blames me, then the whole of me is blamable. That we have to be careful. Generally, blaming is about one thing. And if somebody blames the whole person, then I would question it. And this is my other point, that it's not because somebody blames you that what they say is right. So in a way, you have to listen. Is this true? That to me is creative engagement with blame. 
Is this true? Is this relevant? Has it got anything to do with me? I remember when we used to live in community, which is fairly good training for a relationship. And we used to, it was a consensual, equalitarian community, so we used to have this you know, meeting once a week. And we used to talk to each other and listen to each other, and sometimes it was nice, and sometimes it was a little tough. And one evening, one of the members decided he would have a go at me. And so forth. It was a little unpleasant. And basically what he was saying was that I was too organizational and you keep organizing us and I'm fed up with this and da 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 da. It was not pleasant. It's not pleasant to be blamed. But at the same time, I thought he might have a point. You know, people have mentioned this a little in passing. <laughs> and possibly I have a tendency to organize too much. And possibly I could learn to do it less. Or I could learn to do it in a different way. So I did not think it was kind of, you know, putting me down as such. He was pointing out certain tendencies, certain action. And then I could see it and then kind of do something about it, work with it. Or if I think of another time, when I was working many years ago, I was working with the managers here, being their support person, and one of them was a little funny, a little difficult. And one day, he decided he's not going to see me. I don't know why. And then, for 30 minutes, we were in the kitchen, he started to bury me, and he saying all kind of nasty things about me and this and that. And, and I was standing there thinking, hmm, this is interesting, because generally people don't do this to me. I thought, oh, very interesting. Hmm. But I was not bothered by it because it had nothing to do with me at all. It was fairly obvious. I had not done any of the things he said. It really was, it was somewhere else. It was coming from somewhere else. So I just stood there, let him have his go, because he sounded really quite, he had to have it. And at the end I said, yeah, I mean, you don't want to meet me. So be it, you know. I can't force you. And, and so here's the point, is that you know, when we are blamed to see does it say something about my action or not? So in a way, do I buy it or not? Do I consider it or not? Should I do something or not? And to me, this is creative engagement. Gain and loss. Again, we gain something, wow. We lose something, ooh. And in a way, what, of course, it's better, I mean, generally it feels better to gain than to lose. So it depends what you lose again. You know, if you lose something you did not want, then you might be very happy. So, in a way, to see that we don't identify that if I gain something, my, my ego, myself, is bigger. And if I lose something, then myself, my ego, is smaller. I think it's, again, to, to, to be careful that it does not necessarily say something about us. But of course it might say something about our condition. We might be lucky or we might be clever that we gain something. Or we might be un unlucky or we might not be so clever 
and then we lose something. But so in a way, if I gain something, how do I creatively engage with it? If I lose something, how can I creatively engage with it? That the loss of something does not take away from my sense of worth. I think we have to be very careful there. How? That's why I think the meditation is interesting to see how we, what it means for us as a feeling, as an experience, this sense of self, and what we add to it, and how we make it condition on certain things which are not so very beneficial and helpful. Then pleasure and pain, creative engagement with pleasure and pain. That I've already talked a little about it. Something pleasurable, I would say appreciated, but in a way appreciated knowing it will not last forever. And it's the same with pain. Know it, but also know it is not going to last forever. I mean, again, to kind of, so it makes a thing, we can encounter it in a more spacious way. And then the last one is fame and disrepute. Fame, again, oh, this feeling one is special. When we got the internet, what is the first thing we did, Stephen and I? We Googled our name. <laughs> and we go Googled Stephen's uh, brother's name, who is an artist, and we wanted to see who had the most. <laughs> Stephen had the most. I was second. The brother was third. I think he might have gone up now. <laughs> and in, but in a way, what is it? It's kind of, ooh. And in a way, again, I think we have to, especially nowadays, again, there is so much association of giving a sense of worth to oneself because other people think you are famous. You know, that actually your sense of self is dependent on many people who know you. I mean, this is what MySpace and also uh, whatever the other name is, the other one, works on, you know, how many friends do you have? Or, I mean, you know, it's kind of, and then, if you have a hundred, sense of self, that big. A thousand, wow, you know? But actually, I'm, I don't think it depends on that. So, in a way, you could have somebody who is not famous at all. Like my, my good friend, the teacher who was not charismatic, and actually is such a good human being that anybody who comes into contact with him will benefit from him. And so in a way, I think, again, to be careful, you know, what, how we have the, the functioning self, what is it constitutive with, and what our sense of worth comes from. So if we, be, if, we are, if we have a little fame, how can we creatively engage with it? My thing is to remember you know, you are always a daughter of somebody, the, the friend of somebody, the one who buys the bread, the one who cleans the toilet. So, I mean, fame is just one part of your condition. Your condition are so much, you cannot reduce yourself to one thing. And it's the same thing with disrepute. When, you know, maybe for whatever reason, some people don't feel well, don't think well of you. And again, that doesn't say anything about your worth. He says something about 
what they like or dislike. It could say something about maybe you did something which was hurtful to somebody. But in a way, to be careful, again, with this disrepute, what does it mean? What can I learn from it? I mean, for a while, a few years back, on the internet again, uh, there was lots of people who were against Stephen. So there was kind of people talking about him and saying nasty things about him, but they never read his book. They did not know him. I thought it was very interesting, you know, how people could have an idea. I mean, even one fellow, I was very interested in his work because uh, he is very good work with obsessive-compulsive disorder. And so I tracked him down and I talked to him and then I phoned him. And he said, oh, you know, I answered your email because do you have any connection with Stephen Batchelor? <laughs> I said, yes. <laughs> I am the wife. He said, because you know his book, Buddhism Without Belief, really. It's not a good book. <laughs> and I said, did you read it? And he said, no. <laughs> I read the review. <laughs> So in a way, to, to kind of look, you know, you know, to see what is it, you know, can we learn? To me, this creative engagement is kind of seeing the thing more spaciously and also not defining ourselves. And also to be very careful of where do our sense of worth come from? Where do our sense of contentment come from? And then I wanted to talk, as I said I would, creative engagement with people, partner, friends, children, family, people. And I think it's very important, often there is this idea in Buddhism that we must learn to be detached. That's why I don't use the word. I don't use the word non-attachment, I don't use the word detachment, because I think they imply some kind of, you know, detached. Oh yes, you know, kind of semi-detached, more than semi-detached, you Kind of, you know, oh yes, you're over there, I am here. You know, I have to protect myself from people in case I attach myself to them. And then it's like some dreadful disease, you know. And I don't think that's what the Buddha is talking about. Because he talks about love, he talks about compassion, he talks about caring. When he talks about husband and wife, he has the sixth duty to the husband, from the wife and from the husband to the wife. So, and from the children to the parents. So obviously he thought that people needed to be connected. And so I think we have to, to, to be careful that the fact that we are on the spiritual path, on the Buddhist spiritual path, does not mean that we must be afraid to have connection with people. Because I think connection with people are very important. Also that we do not use the Buddhist teaching as a way to be uninvolved. And I read a, a wonderful, funny article in Tricycle magazine some years ago about this Buddhist wo woman who was telling us all about a detached Buddhist boyfriend who kind of wanted sex but did not want involvement. Very interesting. <laughs> So after, after three, three of those, she kind of changed, moved on from the Buddhist boyfriend. So, and to me, in a way, actually the, the Buddhist path, meditation, can help us to develop 
what I would call creative wise love. Because if we look at what is it that in a way impedes, restrict love, I would say is grasping, is fixing, is tightening. And so often what happens to, with love is that we love a child, we love uh, the parents, we love, the ch- we love our partner, whoever, our friends. And because we like them, because we f- either because we like the person, we love the person, either because we like the feeling we feel when we are with them, and either because them loving us kind of give a good boost to our sense of self, then we grasp at them. We grasp at them so they're close to us, so we can have more of the feeling, so we can have, you know, a better sense of self. But actually, I think, in a way, love is actually more nurtured by non-grasping, by the fact that we love the person, we care for them, and in a way, they add something in our life. Because by ourselves, we can be by ourselves, we can love ourselves. But of course, we need, life thrives on connection, life thrives on interdependence. And so to me, creative engagement in relationship doesn't mean that we're not influenced and we don't depend on the person. But we don't grasp at the person. We don't grasp at the feeling. And so in a way then you can, what I would say, cultivate a loving relationship that then can really develop. And it's a, also it's a loving relationship which is not conditional. Because to me, what is interesting when we love somebody, that it be a friend, that it be a child, that it be a partner, we have a tendency to be a bit conditional. I love you, but if you could change this, it would be so much better. I will love you if you change this, or if you don't do that. And to me, in a way, if you really want to develop a, a, a growing relationship, you have to start from acceptance, like what I talk about today. Acceptance. You first have to accept the person as they are, without if and but. And to me, this is the greatest gift you can give to somebody, is to just love them totally, fully, just accepting the whole person, the good and the bad. And in a way, you say yes to that person. And when somebody does that to you, I mean, you feel totally accepted. You don't feel that they say, yes, I like, you know, three quarter. Give me one quarter. Well, you know, if you could get rid of it. But that's how do we feel if somebody does that to us? I like you three quarter, but one quarter, get rid of it. I mean, it feels like something is wrong. Something is. But if somebody says, I love you totally, then we feel seen, we feel accepted. And then I think from that basis, you can cultivate trust, you can develop love, and then you can talk about difficulty, like the thoughts and the birth. <laughs> you see, I think you are first to accept. And then you can see, you see, in a way, the creative engagement in relationship, we have to, again, move away from that self-centeredness, that the relationship is about me. I remember long ago, I knew this couple, 
And once I was talking with the man in the couple, and he was saying to me, love, it's about my need. And I thought, of course, this was a limited relationship. <laughs> you know, if the, the person was just there to fulfill his need and not kind of looking at what, appreciating the other person, the otherness of the other person. I mean, if everybody was just like us, I mean, it would get a little boring in a way. Kind of. So in a way, we love the other person. They have many different aspects, some people which are, something which are common, something which are not common. And so in a way, to learn to respect each other, to learn to work with each other, and to look, to be, go a little beyond the fear. Often I think in relationship there is this fear. They're going to take advantage of me. I mean, if you're wise, if you see them over time taking advantage of you, then, I mean, you'll do something about it. I think, you know, one learns to do that. But, you know, to start with, I would say, with trust, with acceptance, and then to see when there is difficulty, to look, where is the difficulty? Let it be with a child, in friendship, in partner, or in family. What is the difficulty? Where, where is it? Does it stick? And I would say generally it sticks in terms of the patterns. Unless there is really intense incidents, which is something else, generally it's patterns. And you see, we have this tendency, again, because we, are, we cannot step outside of ourselves. You know, this is the way we are as human beings. I cannot think somebody else thought. I mean, of course, as the Buddha said, if I talk a long time to this person, then I might have an idea what they're thinking, what they're feeling. But generally, I don't know. I know what is in my mind, in my feeling. I kind of have a little of an idea of others. So one must be very careful of the idea that what I think, they think too. What I feel, they feel too. Sometimes they might. Sometimes they might not. So in a way, to, to, to see that we are relatively different, relatively similar, relatively different, and so being careful... Often we go into what I would call this romantic idea that if they love me enough, they would know, I don't know how, what is in my mind so that I don't have to say it. I had that wonderful little incident uh, recently. Very hot in France. I'm working in the garden. And I'm thinking, it's very hot. Would not it be nice to have a glass of water? Would not it be nice if Stephen brought me a glass of water? Oh, yes, I'm sure he will bring me a glass of water. And then Stephen appears, no glass of water. <laughs> and then I really saw what the mind did. You want something, and then you turn it around. And then he could not know what was in my mind. I mean, then jokingly I told him, so now he always brings a glass of water. <laughs> but to be careful about our assumption that actually because somebody loves us or we love somebody, they're going to read our mind. You know, that we are on the way, same wavelength. That I think, and often when there is also difficulty, often you think the people do it on purpose to annoy you. This, I think, we have to be very careful here. And I think what we have to realize is that people have a different survival mechanism. 
And that when they do things, it's not because of you a lot of the time, they do things because of them. And that's when I really saw it with uh, Stephen in terms of uh, the speed. When we get nervous and stressed, I go faster, he goes slower. And so for a long time I thought he does it on purpose <laughs> to get me. <it. laughs> Until I realized, no, no, it was his survival mechanism. And so now when I see that we stress and I do this and he does that, we look at each other, we laugh and we go middle. You know, <laughs> I go a little slower, he goes a little faster. And so in a way, I think we have to accept that the, the patterns will be different because the conditioning is different. And so in a way, how can we bring the, the pa- kind, of, kind of finding and a kind of like a, comprom- not compromise, but that we can accept each other patterning and also we can work with each other patterning. And the same with a child. We have to see how do we view the child. I mean, I had a friend, he wanted so much to have a child. And his wife did not finally convinced her. And I, I tried to tell him that he had a little too much expectation about that child. <laughs> but I, yeah. he, anyway, he got the child. And then it was a little problematic because the child was ill and everything. But then I saw him and he said, yes, it is not exactly <laughs> <laughs> like I had hoped. Like there was this image. It was very interesting. So we have to be careful of the image of the other. What we feel the other, that it be a child, a friend, a person, what what they're supposed to fulfill for us. And to kind of really try, again, it's back to this meta-meditation, to meet the person as the human being. And I know for myself, this was a breakthrough with my mother. When I stopped just seeing her as my mother and the whole history and whatever, and just to see her as a human being whose life rests upon a single breath. And then I could creatively engage with her in such easier way, such lighter way. Then I wanted to say a little something about work, creative engagement with work, because some of you... Uh, in two days' time on Monday, you might go back to work. And I think this is a very interesting place to, to bring meditation, is when we work. How do we work? And it's back to the same thing as with listening. Can we be present to our work? Because I think often we work, we are ahead of ourselves. We barely started the task that we already had the next one. Then we get to the next one, and we barely started it, we... And so in a way, we feel pressured because we're ahead of ourselves. And so I think the meditation can really help us to what is going on. Of course, we need to plan a little, to plan for the meeting. But trying to, to be, in a way, organized enough that we know where we're going to go so that when we are in our work, we just are present to the task at hand. And so we're not distracted, we, we're just doing it, we're just there. And then when it's finished, we can leave it. Because the problem with being ahead, then you have the feeling that the, the past is not totally, totally dealt with. You see, you never have a total feeling of completion. Because you, 
past, you, f- you can always ahead of behind. And in a way, being very present to what we do. And really, oh, you do the task. Then you move afresh to the next one. And you're fully there. Then you finish it fully. Then you go to the next one. And I think in a way to try to really be present to what we are doing. In body, mind, feeling that the whole person is there. And to kind of actually cultivate it, I would say. I mean, it doesn't come, you know, we have to, 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 to train ourselves. That's where the, the practice comes in in daily life. To how, first you have to look, creative engagement, how do I work? And then how can I, in a way, make it so I can be more present? And also I can be, you know, at the same time efficient, but in a lighter manner, so I don't feel so burdened. I think sometimes we kind of burdened by work. How can I do it in a way which, again, back to this stability and openness? How can I be light about it, but at the same time be very steady with it? Another interesting thing with work is back to the worth, back to the worth, and the value we put on it, and according to what work we do, we'll feel, oh, my worth is this, my worth is that. So that if we do some job which are poorly looked at and poorly paid, then we'll feel, oh, my worth is low. And then we generally often are not very happy doing that kind of work. And we kind of always dreaming, if only I could be, I don't know, a computer programmer or director of this or that. And to me, this was my, my, my first great learning experience when I stopped being a nun. And I had no qualification, nothing. I had not been to university, I had nothing. And I had to earn some money for my daily bread. And then somebody came to me and said, well, you know, somebody, so-and-so is looking for a house cleaner, you could do this. And my feeling of my heart sank. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was cleaner. I used to be a nun, and I used to, you know, and mm-hmm. It was very interesting, that, that feeling, you know. And then I had to kind of accept it because that's the only thing I could do anyway. And then once I started it, I decided to creatively engage with the, the, my Zen practice. And actually, it was totally fine. The f- person I did it for was a very nice person, so it was very enjoyable working for him. And then I was just, even though I, I'm, in my youth, I used to hate house cleaning, I just did it. I did it to the best of my ability. And it, it was as good as any other work I have done. And I, at, at one level, I have a lot of respect for house cleaner because I know that, you know, you might not get degrees, but it's a lot of work, you know, and you, you can do it well or not. So again, it's kind of to be careful with the value we attach to the kind of work because of the eyes of society, which then say something about our worth. I think it's more about the work I do. I mean, does it satisfy me enough? That, that is the point. Is it harmless enough? Is it harmless? Is it, can I do it well? Can I, and, and so in a way to, to, to kind of look at it in a different way, more in terms of our own self-satisfaction and how we can do it, how we can be with it. I wanted also to say just a few words 
about creative engagement with views. Because I think that's an interesting one when we go back into daily life. You've been silent up to tomorrow morning, and then tomorrow you can talk. And when we, when we talk often, we talk about our views, our ideas, our thoughts. And actually, again, creative engagement with our view, with our thought, I think is very important. Because often we, again, back to this identification with our thought. So my, I am my thought. Then I propose my thought to somebody. And if somebody rejects my thought, I see not that they think my, my ideas are not, are not a good idea. I think they're rejecting me. And often I think this is when you have a conversation, which becomes a discussion, which then becomes an argument. Look, often there is this feeling that because they refute my ideas, they're refuting me. But I think a lot of the time they're just not agreeing with your idea. And so in a way to see the difference between in a way an argument when you, you start to be hot under the collar. What's happening? Look. When you have a you know, nice discussion, suddenly something happens. And I think both are thinking, uh-uh, he's refuting me. Saying he's refuting my whole being. <gasps> this, is, this is not nice. So then I am doing the same. And then you go back and forth and then you, and then you kind of can even go and fight with each other. And the difference with a dialogue. A dialogue is creative engagement. You share ideas, you listen to each other, and out of that, if there is openness and spaciousness, often you go to another third idea, which actually might be better than the first two. And so with dialogue, you have discovery. You kind of move on. It's very creative. When if you really stick to your idea and to your identification, and actually you don't go very far, you must agree with my idea. No, you must agree with mine. This is it. And then you don't move. And I think it's interesting to notice in daily life when we are, what I would say, in the creative engagement in terms of discussion and then when we go into this very kind of uh, self-identification. And to finish with, I wanted uh, to share with you two quotes from the Buddha, which, again, I have pinned on the board. And the first one, I thought, kind of really exemplify a little kind of uh, what the Buddha is suggesting that we do in some ways. What is the intention? So that's what he says. And he talks of the, of the person who meditates, who is on the path. When he or she has gone to the forest, he or she sits down on a seat made ready. Having, having sat down, he or she washes his or her feet. He or she does not concern himself or herself with pedicure. So you just wash your feet, no pedicure before meditation. <laughs> After washing the feet, one sits cross-legged. One sits the body erect, and establishes mindfulness in front of oneself. One does not occupy one's mind with self-affliction or affliction of others or affliction of both. One sits with one's mind set on one's own welfare, 
on others' welfare, on the welfare of both, in fact, on the welfare of the whole world. So here he's saying that in a way when we meditate, we try to be careful not to get caught in rumination, in blaming, or whatever it is. But actually when we see it, the intention is very much toward our own well-being, the well-being of others, and in a way the well-being of the whole world. So that in a way when we see it, it's within this larger context. And we just sit, and it's in a way we sit to help ourselves, but also in a way we sit to help ourselves, I would say to be better with others. To me, this is one of the things of meditation. And I really find that, that it really helped me in the way I relate to people, the way I am with people. And I think it's very much within this context the Buddha is talking about. Because if I become a better person, then actually it will be, I will be nicer with people around me. I will benefit more people around me. Then the other one is a long one, but I think it's a very important one in terms of speech. Because I think this is another place where we can really creatively engage in terms of speech, in terms of relationship. And the Buddha was very clear, really again and again, he pointed out to speech, to actually how it, this was a whole area of practice. So that's what he said. One does not in full awareness speak falsehood for one's own ends or for another hands, or for some petty worldly hand. So he's basically saying, in full awareness, one is not dishonest. For my own purpose, for my in a way selfish purpose, or for the selfish purpose of other, or for some just petty purpose. One abandons slander as one who is neither a repeater elsewhere of what is heard here, for the purpose of causing division from this. And to me, this is a very important point. To really look at one's speech. When I speak, am I causing division? And to me, this is very important to notice when there is a difficulty between two people. What happens generally? Is that generally, you see, they, 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 they have some dispute, they have some fights, or whatever it is. And then... Because they're just one-on-one. One on one. And then it's hard for one and other to, to get one over, basically. So what do they do? Generally, they rally other people so they can say, well, they agree with me, and they think that you're terrible and whatever. And then this one will, ah, but, but I have these two behind me and they. And so in a way, you use other, so then, then you can get supremacy. You can get you know, more power over the other. And that generally doesn't help the situation, whatever. And so in a way to look, what do we do? The Buddha was very, his point was very much about how can we cultivate, in a way, good relationship. Then he says, and so such a person is a reuniter of the divided, a promoter of friendship, enjoying concord, rejoicing in concord, delighting in concord. He becomes a speaker of word that promote concord. 
one abandons abuse, one becomes a speaker of such words as are innocent, pleasant to the ear, and lovable, as go to the heart, are civil, desired of many, and dear to many. One abandons gossip as one who tells that which is seasonable, factual, good, and the law of the Dharma. He speaks in seasoned speech worth recording, which is reason, definite, and connected with good. And to me, this is really something to take to heart, because some, sometimes one thinks, oh, our life are ordinary and I can't really practice. But I would say there is so many opportunities to, to practice the whole of our day. I mean, in one day, we can, con- we can continuously practice. I think the practice, as we mentioned tomorrow, is not just about sitting. It's about how do I listen? How do I speak? What, what is the effect on my word on others? Do I contribute to harmony or do I contribute to disharmony? And so really to see that in a way, I think with creative engagement, we can try to bring it in, again in a multi-perspective in all different areas of our life. So that's what I wanted to say. Are there any questions or comments? Yes. This is, you see, this is a problem with any school, that the Mahayana had to set itself against an opponent to present himself as good. I mean, this is PR. I mean, you know, religion do it too. And so in a way, nobody, there is nobody in the world who calls themselves Inayana. There is no school who will say, I am an Inayana, yeah, 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 look at me. Nobody, only the Mahayana <laughs> calls a putative somebody in Ayana. So I think first we have to see that, that nobody calls themselves that. And that the one who was supposed to be the Hinayana, they call themselves the elders. The Theravada means the elders. To refer to the quote, to me this is what nowadays I uh, can't really uh, believe in the rhetoric, really, of the Mahayana. I can see the point of it. I think it was more a kind of a reaction against a certain monasticism and kind of trying to bring the lay people, trying to bring kind of a, kind of a looser concept of the, the disciple. But if I read the Buddha, if I read the, the Buddha's quote again and again and again, you sit for your own welfare, but for welfare of others, for welfare of the world, I mean, again and again. He never said, you just sit for yourself. Never, ever. And to me, what was interesting about the Bodhisattva precept, when I translated that text, and now that because of a book I am writing, I'm looking at the Pali quotes, Pali text, I can see so, so many things which come from the Pali text, actually. I can see so many things which come from that. 
in terms of compassion, in terms of love, in terms in term of harmony, in terms of concord, in terms of everything. And, and it's very obvious that actually the so-called inayana, actually, yeah, they, they, it's, I think it's really purely theological because you, you find this reference to the welfare of people everywhere, everywhere in the Pali Canon. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.